The reading for today's sermon is, um, I'm afraid, rather a long one. But there was no easy way of shortening it. And I actually think it's an utterly rip-roaring narrative. And I hope you'll bear with me for the four and a half minutes that it will take for me to read it if I go quickly. It's from Joshua chapter 22, begins at verse 10. Hear the word of the living God. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel, and they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the Lord God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord, and if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith? in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. And then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows, and let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so, to offer burnt offerings, or grain offerings, or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you got to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children, in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, 
the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phineas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phineas the son of Eleazar the priest said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. And the people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, open our eyes, we pray, that we may behold wondrous things in your law. And as you do so, open our eyes that we may see ourselves with greater clarity. That in knowing you, we may know that from which we must repent to be shaped more like your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. Today, I would like to talk about why Christians quarrel, why Christians argue, and what we can do about it. I'd like to begin with a distinction because obviously there are different reasons why people quarrel. Sometimes, and this is pretty regrettable when it happens, sometimes Christians argue because one of them, one side of the argument, and only one side of the argument, is just being plain ungodly. They're being unreasonable. They're being aggressive. They're being manipulative. They're being troublesome. They're being stubborn. They're spoiling for a fight, or they're just plain ignorant. It's not easy to handle situations like that. Um, Truth be told, we're not always the best judges of such situations, and that's part of the problem. But, of course, there is this temptation to a kind of ethical laziness. In discussing disagreements, and especially in looking on, here's the thing. When you look on and you perceive a disagreement, it is possible to be lazy and just take the shortcut of smearing the blame around on both sides. Ah, oh, they probably blame on both sides. You know, they're probably both a little bit at fault, and just to move on. And in those situations, I want to suggest that's a mistake. Jesus says we should be wise as serpents, as well as innocent as doves. And sometimes, the reason you need to be wise as a serpent is because somebody else is acting like one. And if you're a parent, and this isn't really what we're talking about today, but parents know this, it's, it's easy for an exasperated parent to perceive a quarrel between two or more of your children and just to assume that they're both to blame. 
And sometimes they are. Perhaps quite often they are. But I do want to caution you that sometimes it's one of them. Sometimes what needs to be done is not just more mutual understanding, but the person who's wrong is just wrong. Actually, I, I mention this because I'm, I'm very sorry to say that sometimes it happens even among adults. Uh, it is a real tragedy to see the manipulative and deceitful and downright ungodly behavior that sometimes arises even within the church. And it's not your fault. Well, it would be if it were you. It's not the other party's fault that there's a disagreement. But with that category aside, what I want to talk about today is a much more common, mercifully, although it's still not great, category of disagreement, which basically arises unnecessarily. Not from malice, not from manipulativeness, not from a deliberate attempt to stir up trouble, but just from carelessness. Unnecessary quarrels and disagreements and arguments that arise because we're not listening to each other. We're not being careful to hear what one another is saying. We're perhaps not taking due care to how what we say might easily be misunderstood or what we do might be misconstrued. And the result is tragically unnecessary misunderstandings and disagreements that have the potential to tear apart the body of Christ. Those are the category of disagreements I want to talk with you about today. And in this matter, I believe the book of Joshua may help us, particularly this chapter I've just read, Joshua 22. And what I want to do, because it's been a few weeks since we looked at the book of Joshua, I want to just remind you of the background and the situation and just uh, tell the story again, so to speak, of this narrative. And then we'll look a little bit more closely at what goes wrong here. And there's all kinds of lessons to learn, both about the process of how the disagreement arises and then is resolved, and also perhaps along the way about the specific concerns of both of the groups of people involved. Anyway, so recall the situation in the book of Joshua. Those of you who are regulars at All Saints and have been for a while will remember, the book of Joshua describes the history of Israel, the people of Israel, crossing over the River Jordan to receive the inheritance of the land that the Lord, the God of their fathers, had promised them. And so it speaks to the church because we have received an inheritance in the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, the church is the heir of the world. And we are called, just as Israel went into Canaan to fight for their inheritance, so we are called to go out into the world with the sword of the Spirit, that is the word of God, to fight with those weapons that are not weapons of this world to seek to be the means by which Jesus gains the inheritance which is his and shares it with his bride. As the nations are discipled and all people come willingly or unwillingly to bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Joshua is about. And it's divided into four major sections. The first four chapters, roughly, actually it's up to chapter 5, verse 12, but roughly the first four chapters entering the land, then from chapter 5 through chapter 12, it's all about conquering the land. Then from chapter 13 all the way to chapter 21, it's about allocating the land, making sure everybody gets to share in the inheritance. Because that's what it's all about. You've got to make sure that everybody enjoys the portion of the blessing that the Lord has got for them. This is where you are going to live and experience all the goodness of the living God as we invite all the nations to come and meet Yahweh at his holy place at the sanctuary. And so that then takes us to the last section. Three more chapters, 22... 23 and 24. What's this all about? This final section is all about retaining the land. 
how is Israel going to keep what they have been given? Just think where they are. I mean, they are in a place that for generations, hundreds of thousands, millions of their forefathers in the faith perhaps could not have dreamed about. For generations, their forefathers languished in slavery in Egypt, with the promise to Abraham becoming a more and more distant memory and any hope of its fulfillment just withering with every passing day and every passing year. There was a whole generation that died in the wilderness that never got to saw what they see, and now here they are, heirs of the promise of Jesus, sorry, Joshua. Right? So you can see very quickly, can't you, the parallel between their situation and ours. Here we are. Here we are, heirs of promises so glorious that countless millions of our brothers and sisters in Christ could not begin to imagine the blessings that we enjoy from the living God. Look at the people next to you. Look around you at this place. Think about what you've done this last week. Think where Pastor Neil is currently in Uzbekistan. I, I cannot imagine what Pastor Radon and the congregation in Samarkand and then the other congregation that he's been planting in Tashkent, what they would think if they could see the lives that the Lord has given us to live and the, the resources that are ours to avail ourselves of, to grow in faithfulness and faith and the opportunities we have with how many million people on our doorstep who need Jesus so desperately. Here we are, we stand at this point where well, God has just given it to us and it takes three chapters for the living God to exhort and to warn the people of Israel about what might go so disastrously wrong that they would wrong that they would lose it we need to hear like what could we do to blow it all what what might we do so that in 10 years time people write about that church that used to meet there what was it called all saints or something a distant member what could we do and what must what must we not do more importantly to avoid becoming Yet another, well, nearly in the kingdom of Christ. And the answer is found in these three chapters. Uh, each of the chapters begins with Joshua summoning the people. Uh, there's a, the, the verb to call, which is translated summons in some of your Bibles and certainly in my Bible, uh, is used at the beginning of chapter 23 and 24 and 22. In chapters 23 and 24, the, uh, Joshua summons Israel to give them a final exhortation and they renew covenant with the Lord. Chapter 22 is a bit different. So what happens in chapter 22 is it's all focused on the relationship between the tribes in the west, the land of Canaan, and the tribes in the east, the land of Gilead, which is divided by the river Jordan. You remember two and a half of the tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, kind of liked the look of the land in the east. They became known as the Transjordan tribes, or the, the, the eastern tribes, I prefer to call them. And there they are, divided by this river. And at the beginning of chapter 22, they're sent home with this great commission to go home. And as they go home, as they cross the Jordan, an idea occurs to them. And it's the idea that is described in verse 10. Let's just look, I'll just summarize what happens in the whole of this part of the chapter. Look at verse 10 with me. If you've got your Bibles, just open them again. Joshua 22, verse 10. When they came to the region of the, region of the Jordan that's in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they're about to cross the river and they're like, oh, hold on, before we go, they built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And they, they built this there 
And then they move on, they jump in a boat or however they cross the river and they cross the Jordan back to their own land. Verse 11, and the people of Israel heard it said, behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And they didn't react so well to it. Look at verse 12, look what they did. And the whole people of Israel heard about it. The whole assembly of the people gathered in Shiloh to make war against them. They've done what? They've built an altar, right. Two arms, brethren. which you might think is a teensy bit of an overreaction. We'll come to that in a few minutes' time. And basically, the rest of this section is clearing up the mess that arises from that misunderstanding, because that's what it is. You see where we're going? Basically, what happens is they send a delegation, verses 13 to 20, big, long speech. They send Phineas, the guy who's famous for his kind of rather vigorous interpositions into idolatry, Numbers 25, sword, <laughs> Go back and look at it in your spare time if you can't remember what it's about. Um, verses 21 to 29, the people of the East are like, whoa, that's not what we were doing at all. <laughs> Trying to explain what they were actually up to and then it's all kind of sorted out by the end. But I say all sorted out, really, this is not okay. This is not okay. They, I'm not going to say they got lucky. <laughs> they got providential. What happened was... The Lord mercifully spared the people of Israel from tearing themselves apart within days of the completion of the conquest of the land of Canaan, at least as the book of Joshua describes it. But it was this close. It reminds me of the episode, the, the stories that are told about the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, like both keys were in the kind of ignition switches and you know, the little plastic covers were off the big red buttons. You know, it was... Oof, Pretty close. Not the kind of thing you want to repeat again. And so if there's anything we could learn about this that would help us to avoid this kind of crass and overreactive stupidity, it'd be quite nice to pick up some lessons on the way through, wouldn't it? So let's try and understand. What was it that went wrong? What were the different parties concerned about? What did they do right? We might learn something from that. What did they get wrong? How can we resolve misunderstandings before they become quarrels? before they tear the people apart. It seems to me that the Western tribes were basically concerned about one thing. At least, that's what they said they were concerned about. They were concerned about the possibility of idolatry. That altar represented a threat to the religious integrity of Israel. There's supposed to be one altar, and you've gone and built another one. How dare you? Two arms. And let's stamp it out. And you see that in the uh, description of the delegation sent. Just look down at verse 13. And so they send this delega delegation, um, one representative of each of the nine and a half tribes, so ten representatives, headed by Phineas, the guy, well, did they pick him because of his reputation? for vigorous action in the face of idolatry? Seems likely. Actually, Phineas emerges as something of a hero here, just as he does in Numbers 25. We don't know much about Phineas, but what we know is all good. Even in Exodus 6, the genealogy of Moses and Aaron, it's not really a genealogy of Moses and Aaron at all. It's a genealogy of Phineas. Draw it out, and Phineas is the guy at the bottom of it, because you need to know where this man is coming from, because he's the guy who sorts out this quarrel. Anyway, so they go... And look with me, verse uh, 16, they all come to the eastern tribes. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel? 
turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord. Now, what do you make of this? Does this strike you as a justified reaction? I think it's really intriguing because actually if you think about it, you can understand why they would be concerned. I mean, you remember the explanation that comes later. This isn't really an altar for sacrificing. Well, I've got news for you. The word altar in Hebrew means sacrificing place. I mean, that's, it's the noun that comes from the verb to sacrifice. So we've built here a sacrificing place. What's it for? Oh, it's not for sacrificing. It just sounds kind of implausible, doesn't it? And so you can, they've built a sacrificing place away from the tabernacle. What are they thinking? The background, of course, is in Leviticus 17. And we all know, because we're all paying attention when Moses stood and spoke these words from the Lord. Any one of the house of Israel, uh, Leviticus 17, or of any of the strangers that sojourn among them, anyone who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice and doesn't bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that man shall be cut off from the people. And Deuteronomy 12, you've got the same thing, this constant emphasis of you've got to go to the place. It keeps repeating, the place that the Lord your God will choose. You don't get to just sacrifice stuff anywhere. It's like a big deal, guys. What are you doing, you crazy Easterners, building a sacrificing place someplace else? Verse 10 gets worse. Look at it, because you can't really miss it. Look at it, end of verse 10. They built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. It looks like an attempt to outdo the altar in the tabernacle, which is up at Shiloh. In fact, the phrase that's translated an imposing size, it it means literally great to see. That's how it's a translation of a little Hebrew idiom. You know, there are only two things in the Bible, apart from this, that are described as great to see. One of them is the burning bush. The other one is the vision of the man in Daniel chapter 10, probably a vision of Jesus, but ask Dr. Jordan afterwards whether he agrees. Is that right? No need to tell us now. It looks like a bit of a poke in the eye, doesn't it? We've built something that's great to see. (laughs) Much greater than your little tabernacle thingy. Imposing size. And to cap it all, verse 11, what precisely have they built? Look at it. You've got to look so closely at the Bible to see how it's communicating what it's communicating. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built what? Not an altar. The altar. So can you understand the reaction of the people in the West? It's like, what are they thinking? It looks like the kind of thing where you'd say, yeah, go get the swords, uh, bring the pistols as well, we're going to need them if this is what they're going to do. And especially if you think back, you know, there was a previous crossing of the Jordan earlier in the book, chapter 4, where there was something built upon the crossing of the Jordan, building stuff like stones from the riverbed built on the sides of the river. That doesn't sound like such a bad idea. But back in chapter 4, the Lord explicitly instructed that it be built. No instructions here from the Lord. And what's it called in chapter 4? It's called an altar? No. It's called a memorial. It's the same word that's here translated witness. So back in chapter 4, that's great. The Lord told you to build a memorial. Great. Here, no instruction from the Lord, and there you go, building an alternative sanctuary, the sanctuary, to outdo the Lord's sanctuary. 
And of course, they're conscious of the cost of this. And this is always the way. So what happens when there's disagreement or misunderstanding among the people of God? The people who feel aggrieved by what is being said or what is being done will inevitably end up concerned about well, the consequences for the rest of us. Verse 16, this breach of faith. Verse 17, haven't we had enough of this? Didn't we try this kind of alternative worship before, Numbers 25? The, the idolatrous worship at Peor? Or what about verse 20? We've done it like a few months ago, a couple of years ago with Achan. Haven't we learned any lessons from this? And don't you remember that both times it wasn't just you who got into trouble, the whole people of Israel are imperiled. And so the Western tribes are deeply, deeply concerned about this apparent, what they call it, breach of faith, apostasy from the Lord. Now, what do you think? Understandable? Have you ever been in that situation? Have you ever been in a situation like that when somebody does something or says something, and you just, you think, there's really only one way that I can possibly understand this. The only way this could be understood would be as an act of rebellion. It just like, it's like pure ungodliness. And you hear about it, it's like, huh. And your conclusion is formed in your mind, and it just seems so obvious. In fact, there's this huge debate among the commentators at this point, and understandably so. Um, here's Dale Ralph Davis, who sees it exactly this way, and I, he's a great commentator, very sharp um, pastor and scholar. He says, quote, how the church needs to recover such a passionate piety, such an infatuation for the true worship of God, such an anxiety when covenant people appear to wander from the path. And like many, he, he sees the reaction of the Western tribes is exactly the right thing to do. What do you think? Because so far, it looks good. I mean, it even looks, doesn't it remind you of Jesus' attitude to the purity of worship among the people of God? Think about his re reaction in um, John chapter 2 with the cleansing of the temple. And he goes up to Jerusalem and the Passover of the Jews is at hand and he, he finds people in the temple and they're kind of money changers and selling uh, oxen and pigeons and stuff and he makes a whip out of cords and drove them all out of the temple and he tipped over the tables and take these things away do not make my father's house a house of trade and his disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume me doesn't this look like Jesus I mean Jesus the greater Phineas Jesus, the one who is consumed with passionate zeal for the purity of the worship of the living God. The trouble is, we're not Jesus. And the challenge at this point is both to learn <laughs> that passionate commitment to the purity of the worship of the living God that Jesus portrayed, that, Je that is pictured here in in the response of Phineas and the other representatives from the West, to, to, to feel that commitment and to realize that we might just have got it wrong. Let me just show you how we might have got it wrong. I'll certainly show you how the people of Israel on the West got it wrong. Just look again at verse 11 and notice what happened. So they, 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 this altar gets built, big altar, imposing size. And look at precisely what happens in verse 11. And the people of Israel heard it said... 
<laughs> Not the people of Israel heard and then went to make careful inquiry. People of Israel heard. Oh, see, I heard. Well, don't you think you might want to check? I mean, here is a description of a rumor, if ever there was one, right? And where exactly is the altar? So you've got to think about this from the perspective of the people in the east. Where is the altar built? They built there in verse 11, sorry, verse 10. Well, it's the region of the Jordan that's in the land of Canaan. Which side of the river is that? West or east? It's west, right? Keep reading. Verse 11, they've built this altar. They've built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel, which is a way of referring to themselves. They built this altar on the west side and they're going across to the east side. So it, it's not altogether the most obvious place that you build an altar if you were planning to actually go there. Because it's quite difficult to get to. This is the whole point about the Jordan. The Jordan is a boundary, it's hard to cross. It's not bridges and you know, little ferries where you pay 50 cents and to get carried. It's, it's difficult to cross it. They're worried about that kind of separation. If what they wanted to do was build an altar for sacrificing, there are far better places to build it than somebody else's territory where it's hard to get at. And then you think, okay, let's suppose you weren't sure. And the interesting thing is, I mean, it's just a, if you read through from verses 10 to 12 and you read through carefully, like I'm showing you to do, you get to the end of verse 11 and you, what should you think? You should think, I actually don't know. I actually, it's not obvious. Is this an idolatrous and wicked poke in the eye both to the living God himself and also to all the other nine and a half tribes that are going to be faithful? Or is it phew, something else? What should you do? And you rack your brains and think, what does the Bible say about how we should respond when we hear or think we hear of our brothers turning away from the Lord? And you go back to Deuteronomy 13. And Deuteronomy 13 is not a chapter that says, heal the wound lightly. Deuteronomy 13 is the one that says, yeah, you shall stone him to death if there's a problem. But what does it say? If you hear in one of your cities to which the Lord your God is taking you that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and drawn away the inhabitants of the city saying, let us go and serve other gods, what shall you do? Verse 14, listen very carefully. You shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And what did they do? Verse 12, when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war. And just listen again to what they say. Verse 16. Does this sound to you like an inquiry? Does this sound to you like just checking to make sure? What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel? Sounds more like accusation to me. Yeah? And the post of accuser has already been taken. What are you trying to jump into his shoes? It turns out, actually, to be a serious misunderstanding. It's only averted, actually, by the eastern tribes setting it right. And at the end, it's Phineas who said, yeah, verse 31, you have delivered the people of Israel from this disaster. But I have to say, this, I don't want to say approach to resolving disagreements, I, but I guess that's the best way to put it. This approach to resolving disagreements, this ready, fire, aim 
shoot first, ask questions later, is all over the reformed world, has resulted in slander and false accusation everywhere, and we are not immune. What would you want to say? What would you want to say to the Western tribes? If you could jump into the beginning of verse 12, what would you want to say now? How about, guys, <laughs> calm down for a sec. Like, I remember years ago, um, uh, a dear friend of mine who was actually the, the pastor of the first church I worked at, um, Richard Kokin, I've talked about him before, very fine preacher and mentor of pastors. And at one point, I think I was letting rip with something or other, gunning down some supposed heresy, and he said, Steve, save your missiles. Like, (laughs) you know, it's like, yeah, because actually not everything is, not everything is that clear, not everything is that catastrophic, and certainly it's not true that you've understood everything perfectly. Imagine for a second, I mean, you hear... Because, verse 11, we have heard that there's this bunch of other Christians somewhere down the road that, you know, takes a slightly different view from you on the details of observing the Lord's Day and has, sings contemporary worship songs and not many psalms and gasp, they don't even baptise their babies. (gasps) Horror. Suppose you hear that. Okay, what do you do? Like, more accurately, how do you articulate in your own mind what's going on there. Here's one option. Behold, what brood of vipers we have here who despise the holy day of the Lord, violating the covenant by which they were sanctified, who cast away the inspired hymn book of the scriptures, which Jesus himself now sings in heaven in favour of Jesus, my boyfriend, yada, 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 ditties, and who trample on the faces of the most vulnerable in the kingdom of God, to whom Jesus explicitly gave in, about whom Jesus explicitly gave instructions, let them come. Is that how you describe it? Because let me tell you, that's how it gets described. Or maybe you say it like this. You say, you know, <laughs> I, guess, I guess that brothers and sisters in Christ have come from a different background and different tradition. And they understand things a bit differently from us. And it's not that we think, oh, that must be right, or that we kind of fudge and find some kind of ill-defined happy medium halfway between, but why would we go in with accusation? Why would we do that? Only if we thought we could never be wrong. It's kind of tragic, you know? And I have to tell you, it's going to keep happening because, see, the Lord's plan is to keep growing his church And what tends to happen is when people start coming to All Saints, whether they're coming from another church down the road or whether they're coming from no church at all in particular and they join us or they want to join us, they might not have all their theology fully formed and perfected like yours just yet. You know what I'm saying? Like they might, goodness gracious, did you see they came into worship with a Starbucks mug? I mean, that's like several things, like Starbucks for a start. But did they, did they buy that? I mean, yeah, and I think that's wrong, okay? Honestly, I think it's a mistake. It's, it's breaking the fourth commandment to do your shopping on the Lord's Day. I don't think you should do that. But what? Unload both barrels? It's like, really? Because what's our aim? I, the guardian of purity. Or, no, let's, 
let's talk, let's work through this together. Let's try to reach something that's more like maturity for both of us. So, that's what the Western tribes were concerned about. Briefly, let's just talk about what's going on in the East, why they're so concerned and why they did what they did. The Eastern tribes were motivated by a deep concern that one day they might be excluded. You see it in what they said. They absolutely don't want to depart from the way of the Lord. They invoke the Lord against them. Like, if, if this is what we're doing, may the Lord judge us. But what they say is, look, guys, we were just concerned that one day your children might say to our children, you don't really belong because this great, great river in the, in the way of us. So what we decided to do is we thought we'd build an altar on your side, not to be sacrificed at, because why would we build an altar the other side of a raging torrent of the Jordan if we wanted to go to it? It's a witness to you <laughs> that we're part of the same community. You see in what they said, I won't read through the whole thing again, but you see the verse 24, for example. We did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you got to do with Israel? What have you got to do with our God? Because you're over there. And it's interesting, there's, this subtle, there's always subtle details. You know how many times the word altar is used in this chapter? It's 12 times. It's such a beautiful little touch, isn't it? Like, which of the tribes of Israel should have access to the altar of the Lord? All 12. Like, we all belong here. And it's not for sacrifice. Verse 26 let us now build an altar not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his sanctuary. We, we're part of the community of the people. And so they have this impassioned reaffirmation right at the end where they speak of the altar of the Lord, our God. So we're actually worried. Did we, did we do the right thing? I don't know. I actually don't know. Genuinely, I don't know whether they did the right thing to build this thing here. I don't think the chapter actually answers that. But what they're actually concerned about is the possibility of being excluded. Frankly, their concern is justified given the way that the Western tribes talk about them. Did you notice some of the, the details here? Look at verse 16 again. Look at how the Western tribes describe themselves. What is this breach of faith that you've committed against the Lord from, of Israel by turning away this day from following the Lord, by building yourselves an altar this day against, in rebellion against the Lord. Now, who is it who said that? Just look. The beginning of that verse. This is the accusation. Where does it come from? Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. Well, was that the whole congregation? <laughs> it's like, now, that was just the Westerners. They just said the quiet bit out loud. They let it slip, didn't they? These guys in the East who might be a bit worried that one day we'll get excluded and shut out have something that they might justifiably be worried about because that's how they think of themselves. They think of themselves over there in the Lord's land as we're the Lord's people and you're not, well, kind of, you know, Reuben and half of Manasseh and a bunch of, you know, dispersed nations, but we're the people of the Lord. They say it again in verse 19, as the way they describe the land. Like if, you, if your possession is unclean, look, we didn't mention unclean, but notice, your possession over there, the Lord's land over here. Can you see? What's happened is, I mean, we could talk about this for a long time, but just think about this for a second. The structural differences 
and distinctions that are built into the fabric of the places where these communities live, east and west, the river between them, the different history, what's going to happen from this day forth, all the differences that are ineradicably wired into how they will live, have created in the minds of the Westerners already in the first generation, well, it's you over there in your possession and we're here in the Lord's land. You can see why they might be concerned, right? So that's what they were concerned about. They didn't want to be excluded. And as I said, I'm honestly not sure who's right. Somebody's going to ask in forum, was it the right thing to do to build the altar, please? (laughs) I I don't know. I honestly... Should they have been a bit more clear about their intentions beforehand? I don't know. I, I think the chapter is designed not to answer that question. I don't think it's a question that has no answer. I think the question, has, the question is raised for a different purpose, to expose the foolishness of this way of resolving this disagreement, which nearly tears the nation apart and causes them to lose the inheritance, which is the whole reason that they've got five and a half books into the Bible to begin with actually very interesting just as we conclude we praised the western tribes didn't we for their zeal Phineas like zeal Christ like zeal in protecting the purity of the Lord's holy place yeah like John chapter 2 well what was Jesus actually concerned about in John chapter 2 he was concerned about the poor being excluded from worship, Gentiles being excluded from worship, outsiders being excluded from worship in the temple. That's what's with the money changers and the selling doves and so on. It was a way of making a fast buck off Gentiles and poor people who couldn't afford the regular sacrifices. Who's closer to the concerns of Jesus? What actually makes worship impure is excluding people who want to join with the people of God. That's the heart of Christ. Jesus looks at this. I'm convinced Jesus looks at this and thinks, man, not a plague on both your houses, but parents, you ever felt like this? You've got two kids and you want to bang their heads together? Because what Jesus is doing is bringing people together and he's bringing them from different places with different histories, different people. And when he brings different people together, they are <laughs> different people. And if our response, every single time we perceive difference, even potentially significant differences, swords, God help us. We'll be standing against the purposes of Christ if we do not make every effort to understand. I love it when Pastor Neil says this. I think he learned it from his father. Seek to understand. Don't seek to misunderstand. You heard him say that? We've all heard him say that, haven't we? I think this is a classic example of precisely that, and it's what we need to be in order to cut with the grain of what Jesus is now doing among us. Jesus is doing wonderful things here. He is bringing people, even from churches where they sing praise choruses. (gasps) Wonderful. I'm not going to start singing praise choruses. There are reasons why we do what we do. But let us seek to understand and to grow together as members of the body of Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we thank you for this warning and encouragement in your word, showing us how to retain this tremendous blessing that you have bequeathed us with. 
Watch over us, we pray, and change our hearts so that our instinct is to cut with the grain of what Jesus is doing by the Spirit and to welcome different people as all together we seek to find our Lord Jesus Christ and draw closer to him. And we pray in his name. Amen.